My name's Graham Hobson and my entrepreneurial journey started when I was in my mid-30s. I wanted to be more selective in what I printed and not fill up my uh, albums and I thought there must be a better way. If I buy a digital camera, surely I can be more selective. I realized at the time I needed a co-founder to um, kind of support, mentally support me, but also fill in the many gaps I had. In many ways, we, we were both taking a big risk. Successful entrepreneurship is, is a process of natural selection. Welcome, Graham. Thanks for joining us on this week's podcast. Would you mind kicking off by telling the audience listening a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name's Graham Hobson. I am uh, about, well, I am 56 years old. Um, and my entrepreneurial journey started when I was in my mid 30s. Um, before that, I was a technologist and I'd worked for uh, some investment banks and had a, you know, good living and good life and enjoyed the work, but I got a bit bored. And uh, around 99, I had two young kids. At the time, I've got three boys now who are all adults, but at the time they were very young and we were taking lots of photos of them every week and I'd go down to Boots with a roll of film every couple of weeks and get back a big pack of photos and just reflect that, you know, not many of the photos were very good. So um, I wanted to be more selective in what I printed and not fill up my uh, albums and I thought there must be a better way. If I buy a digital camera, surely I can be more selective. So I bought uh, a little Sony camera and it took great pictures and I looked at them on my computer, um, but there was just no way to get prints. Uh, nowhere on the high street, nowhere online, uh, and life's too short for inkjet printers. So I, I thought it can't be that difficult. There must be a way to have one of those machines that you see in the back of every chemist that print photos hooked up to a website with some kind of, you know, order management thing in the middle. Um, so on the tube, this is late 99, I was just writing a kind of business plan every day of what would a service like that look like. And um, eventually got to the point where I convinced some people to back me and I started a company called Photobox. And I went through that journey for many years, which we can talk about later if you want to. Uh, I made many mistakes um, and learned a lot and I've somehow kind of emerged out of this as a survivor um, who knows a bit about startups and scaling and um, you know how to make companies work uh, and I've yeah worked for other companies since but uh, these days I just do quite a lot of advisory and helping others. Your story is actually a bit of a startup legend for my listeners that don't know. It really is kind of incredible what you did do. You started Photobox in 2000, right? Yeah. And so um, I'm just looking and trying to piece together the history. Um, you were prior to that working at Merrill Lynch, right? Before. Yes. And so just talk, my listeners always, I guess, we, we, we love to understand how you, a lot of people want to know how to go from like working for someone else to starting your own business. And so just listening to your story there, you know, you started making notes, you could see all those, there was a pain point, there was a problem. But what point did that kind of like those notes turn into giving in your notice at Merrill Lynch and, and going for it? How did that manifest itself? Yeah, so I suppose I probably worked on this, you know, I called it a business plan, I suppose it was, for two, three weeks. And it ended up being, I don't know, 20 pages long. And I was just trying to think, um, 
if I had this kind of audacious goal of creating something new, how would I break that down into different parts? You know, like where would I get the money from? How would I build the tech? How would I market it? And and I didn't have great answers for some of these things, but I did kind of have some answers, draft answers. And after I had this document, I started just talking to colleagues and saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Now, I was enormously helped by the fact that this was 1999 and anyone on TikTok is way too young to understand that this was like the the the. Um, the, the boom time of the internet, suddenly everybody was setting up a website and a business online. And um, all you had to do was say, I'm thinking of doing this website. And people would say, yeah, we're, okay, where do I send the check? Right. So that was the end of 99. And um, it does sound a bit like I, 2021, by the way, a little bit, but anyway, just have to say an app now, I guess. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there was a kind of gold rush um, kind of fever to it. And um, you know, I worked with people in the city. I'd, I'd worked with people at UBS for years and I was working at Merrill Lynch. So there were a few people around. I didn't need a lot of people, but I, I'm, I got about 20 people that decided they would be happy to invest a bit of money. But I have to say, you know, like I was, I was good at my job, but I absolutely did not have the skills necessary to start my own business. I'd never managed other people. I wasn't super confident about anything apart from you know turning up at work and doing a bit of technology so i i was absolutely convinced that i couldn't do this alone and i i realized at the time i needed a co-founder to um kind of support mentally support me but also fill in the many gaps i had so i had a friend who i'd worked with for years and he was um, a more sensible person than me and uh, a bit more corporate and so I lobbied him to come and join me. And I think he said no about three times. And eventually he said yes, but mainly because he got fired. So that was a <laughs> handy stroke of luck for me. Um, he, uh, his name's Mark Chapman. And he was my, my line manager at UBS on the tech side. And he'd also been my kind of distant high boss uh, at Merrill Lynch. And um, yeah, he was due to go out to uh, Southeast Asia to run tech for them and that all fell through. So yeah, he came in as a reluctant co-founder, but I absolutely wouldn't have had the guts to do this without um, having that kind of support. That's a fascinating insight, kind of then you feed off each other, right? So um, you, but you, you convinced him, do you think it really was that he got fired that convinced him or do you think he was going to jump anyway? Was it, was it literally, okay, why not? I've been fired. Fate, or, or or do you think you would have got him in anyway? I I think if his you know plan A had worked, he would have gone out to Hong Kong and had a great life out there. Um, but it didn't. Uh, I, you know, Mark, um, Mark and I were very different, and I actually think that's a key thing to uh, you know marriages, business partnerships, everything. You've got to bring different skills to the table. You've got to have a different way of looking at problems. Otherwise, you get this kind of you know bubble and echo bubble going on um but uh, we were very different but it, in many ways that startup life i loved i loved that phase of you know diving into product and and tech and business development and like an endless list of risks and issues and he he hated that i think and um he was much more confident with things like process legals you know bookkeeping all this stuff um i mean yeah that that sounds like it was very low level he basically ran operations um 
But he told me about three months in, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. And I think he said it many times over the journey. He eventually stayed with the company for 12 years. So mm. he obviously did, it did work out for him. But uh, I, I, I really worried at the beginning. What if this guy that I'm depending on to make this happen suddenly walks off into the sunset? Um, what, am I going to pack up and stop myself? I, it was a big issue for me. It's an interesting one because clearly he, of course, had a lot of options as well, right? So there's, I think for a skill set like that, there's always lots of options. Yeah, and, you know, I, in many ways, we, we were both taking a big risk. Um, it was, you know, uh, uh, mid-30s for me was a kind of ideal jumping off point into entrepreneurship. I'd accumulated you know, some savings, experience, contacts, um, and also a perspective of, well, maybe if I'm going to do anything else, this is the time to do it. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be commuting on the train and doing the same job in when I'm 50 kind of thing. And, uh, so it was a good jumping off point. Um, and I think we were both taking a lot of risk, but on the other hand, if it all failed, we would have gone back to our kind of technology banking careers and you know managed to recoup some savings in in a few months do you remember that time of handing in your notice at Merrill Lynch did it did it feel nervous or was it obvious and how did that how did that play I just it just felt like the right thing to do I think it was more of an issue for my wife who was incredibly supportive but I remember the day I told her in October 99 on a Saturday morning that you know hey I've had this idea we we went for out for breakfast and we were in town and uh I said that to her and she said, oh, what is it? And I told her and she said, hmm, yeah, well, that sounds really exciting. You know, you're not going to give up your day job, though, are you? And I said, <laughs> no, no, I am going to give up my day job. And uh, she was very worried about it because, you know, it was a big kind of step into the, the unknown. Um, and, and I think it, I was very conscious of the fact that she was taking as much of a risk as me for, for many years. And... I didn't have a lot to show for it for, you know, the, the first six years anyway. It felt like um, all yet to be proven. But again, I think like you're saying about co-founders in a business, I think your partnership needs to be, you need an opposite. Like my wife is a bit like that. Every time I tell her of a crazy idea, she, she doesn't, she doesn't, she's got good at it now. We've been together 20 years. She doesn't instantly say that's crazy. But over time, she does push me on it. And I think you need it, right? You need that balance. Otherwise, if you have too much of the, I'm just going to do it, you need a bit of balance, I guess. That's why it's good to have a partner like that. Yeah, no, I um, I can't remember what it was, but even last week, uh, Roisin said to me, like, what are you doing about this? And I told her, and she goes, oh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And I argued <laughs> my point. And then about an hour later, I thought, nah, she's right. <laughs> so, no, well, so, this is uh, it. I always yeah. tell people, marry someone smarter than you. It really helps. Yeah. It really helps. I, I, um, I, I made the mistake of doing an IQ test with my wife early on. She's way off the charts, and I realized, but it's really useful because it's, you know, but, but she's not a risk taker, which is not, it's not an IQ thing that I think, you know, it's, it's, got, it's something else. And so, but the risk taking thing, you need, you need someone to think it through. But just going back to the early days, so, you, you know, you, you, you find this, your co founder, you managed to convince him, luckily, because he also, um, it was the right timing, so fate played a part. What were the next few steps? Can you remember what, what happened next? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are many, well, let me start by saying that successful entrepreneurship is, is a process of natural selection. There's nothing you can do at the beginning that guarantees a successful outcome. But the people who are the survivors and get to the kind of finish line like I did, 
uh, it's easy to kind of look back over over the years and post-rationalize, oh yeah, I was really smart, I made all the right decisions. But the fact is, I made so many wrong decisions and horrible, stressful, bad, dead ends. Um, but on balance, I made more right ones than than wrong ones. Um, but they're only kind of judged by the context they were in, you know, like uh, yeah, somebody else could have had exactly the same playbook and not got to the same result. So, um, so there's a large amount of luck and serendipity um, that gets you to a good place. And, and I really think that um, serendipity is a kind of key element to entrepreneurship. And it's to be encouraged, at, at a, you know, above all else. And um, I only kind of learned that quite late on. But uh, I, I think what entrepreneurs do is to make connections between things. In fact, that's literally what the the word means, right? You 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 uh, between you pick up things between two places. That's a, what it means. And so you might like learn a piece of information and you store that away. And a couple of years later, you think, oh, that that's exactly the solution I need or the person I need to talk to 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 make that thing happen. And it was a bit like that with the early days of Photobox. I was really lucky in that. Some of the people I needed to make a, a success of it or the early stages um, were people that just kind of randomly came to me. Um, I knew nothing about marketing. And when I was writing my business plan, I naively thought, well, let me just try and connect with, I don't know, something like PC World. And every time they sell a camera, they put one of our vouchers in the box. And uh, I went to the dentist for a checkup and he said, oh, you work in technology, don't you? Uh, my cousin runs PC World. <laughs> so I thought, oh, OK, well, we have to connect with that person. So I I contacted my dentist cousin and it turns out he'd left PC World, but he his name was Colin Glass and he was um, this. He'd worked for Dixon's for years. He'd run Boots Photographic. He knew everybody in the photographic industry and he ended up coming in as our chairman and and driving a large amount of our uh initial kind of relationships and, and marketing strategy um and you know it's just pure chance that i met him and and that he got involved and he was such a lovely guy and really helped us similarly my cfo was my wife's cousin's boyfriend at the time uh, and i thought he was a pub accountant but it turns out he was a uh, you know, kind of minor VC and had worked with some NASDAQ listed companies. And um, yeah, d there was a whole bunch of connections like that. And, and I think um, you've got to get out there and talk to people about what interests you and encourage that kind, those kind of connections to be made. Um, they, they really help. I think this is such an important point. I mean, one way of relating it maybe to my audience, if you've got an idea, for example, if you're holding on too tight to that idea, it doesn't happen. If you share it with the world, you'll be surprised how many people might help you. And I think this, um, you know, what, what, I, what I'm taking from what you're saying there, Graham, is, you know, you, you, you had this idea of putting the card inside boxes and then you started talking about it. And, 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 and that meant that someone said, oh, I know someone that can help you with that. Or, and these things happen because you're sharing it. Whereas I think sometimes people will hold that in. That's a good idea. I won't tell anybody about that. And, I'll, you know, maybe I'll just try and do it on my own and get to Curry's Direct. And, but just by sharing it, right, the, the, um, you ask the universe for something. You know, you, you have a, a basic yeah. plan and then somehow it happens, right? Yeah, it's funny. I'm quite a private person but I, I do overshare what's going on in my head, you know, <laughs> and, uh, 
and, and, and most of the time that works out quite well. I think that's a really important trait in an entrepreneur. Again, one that's not really highlighted as a, as a strength, right? But I, I actually think it is. I think just and being willing to share and even being willing to explain. Like I've time I explain an idea to my wife, she actually rips me apart for you know most of the time. But, <laughs> but, 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 and, and she makes it better and then she puts it back together and then eventually it's good. You know, but if I if I was embarrassed to tell her because it isn't a good idea yet, then I wouldn't have got that process going, right? So I think that's kind of, yeah. in my view, um, why oversharing is actually really and, good. And I also think, you know, I've I've heard that's how comics kind of work their craft. They yeah. they work their material for ages with test audiences, you yeah. know, refining every phrase, every word yeah. uh, until it's ready for prime time and. And they can't just go out cold and, you know, say a line and hope that it's going to land and be funny. You've got to, got to keep talking and, and refining your own way of thinking about the world. Totally, yeah. I'm, I'm going to name drop here because it's the only famous person I know. <laughs> uh, Ricky Gervais is my neighbour. And that's literally how he, uh, he says he's, he's got uh, as famous and as successful as he has. He, he shares it with his partner, Jane, and he basically shares it with large audiences and just keeps sharing. And sometimes they don't laugh when he tweaks it and then they do laugh. And then he, so that, that's, no, I think that's a very good analogy you've, you've highlighted there for, for, for business too. So, so um, again, just kind of um, going back to like the early days of, of, of building um, one of your businesses, Photobox, I think the, um, the process, so did, you had this, okay, let's, let's, let's start it. You've got your co-founder in did you did you then think about raising money i mean did you raise money early how, then what was the next steps in your mind what how did it how did you build it again people wanting to learn how to build a business what do you think um yeah were, were things that you did? so i i can i can give you the answers because they're kind of relevant uh i i raised I, t- I took advice from my wife's cousin's boyfriend who was our <laughs> cfo uh, and he he said um we should aim to raise between i don't know to 240,000 and 480,000 pounds. Um, and, uh, and I was like, okay. So we kind of asked people and within a week we'd raised 480 K. I actually had the checks in my hand. I do remember going to my bank NatWest and opening a new bank account and paying in 480 grand. And, uh, and then I, and at that time I had nothing, right. There was no company name. There was no, there was, it was just like uh, 16 sheets of paper that was my business plan and a bank account with half a million quid in it. And I thought, you know, this is kind of where crime stories in the Daily Mail get started. And, uh, and I, anyway, that was a weird thing. But uh, raised the money really quickly. I think my, uh, you know, the, the kind of key word of the first two years was naivety. Uh, my naivety was that that would be an amazing amount of money that would get us through to success. Um, in fact, we blew through half of that money, you know, before we opened our website at all. Um, <clears throat> there were so many things we had to pay cash for that um, we couldn't get. A, we had to pay cash for the printer. It was 140 quid, 140 grand. We, you know, there was no AWS or any kind of infrastructure service. You had to go out and buy servers. And they were ridiculously expensive, um, you know, as a as a younger audience will appreciate that um, we had to buy 64 gigs of photo storage, which was a two-man lift. You know, it was like this big rack unit. It cost us 10 grand. And, of course, you know, my phone would piss on 64 gigs these days. But anyway, um, so it, it, we blew through money really quickly. And by the time we actually opened uh, the service in May 2000, we had 
uh, a fairly small amount of working capital left. And we did have to um, go and raise money again. And uh, we had plans to do that. Um, it didn't work out quite as planned, um, but we, we did end up doing a small round. But somehow somebody had told me that VCs were evil and I, I thought, I really don't want to go to VCs. Um, so we didn't go to VCs for six years, which was a big mistake because when we did go to them, they were lovely and they really helped. And I realized I'd probably wasted about three years of small business life um, not, not funding the business earlier. I think this is actually a very important point because sometimes people's perception of, let's say, VCs, um, you know, as that, that's money men and somehow that's bad. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a big mistake a lot of people make, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, of course, there's going to be good and bad in every pocket of every ecosystem. But, uh, but I, I think it's actually quite, quite refreshing to hear that, you know, that that was, that was a good experience for you and, and you kind of wish you'd, you'd done it earlier. Um, so well, how did you go about, was it, I mean, by this time, what, what year is it? 2002, three, what year I'm guessing? So we, well, we launched, we launched in 2000. Uh, so we, you know, we, we kind of moved into a shabby small office in Clerkenwell in London, uh, in early 2000. We went through a rapid phase of building out the the tech and the logistics, you know, the, the ability to print and dispatch orders. Uh, we launched in May 2000 and, um, and then entered this really slow, steady growth that I wasn't expecting. I, I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was expecting, you know, ginormous growth, but it, it just didn't happen. But it's not surprising because, like I said, I knew nothing about marketing. And um, all of the things that you would use these days to attract an audience, like, uh, you know, social media, AdWords, none of that stuff existed, right? We, we had basically two choices. Um, we, we, we could put banner ads on things, but they didn't work then. They don't work now. They, they never worked. Um, we could do leaflet drops. I suppose we could pay for adverts in digital camera magazines, but none of those things really particularly worked. So it was a very slow start. And um, I can remember it took until um, December 2001. So that was, you know, kind of 20 months later before we got to our first thousand pound revenue day. Wow. That's patience. Yeah. So were you worried during that time? Was it, you were like, were you questioning whether this was going to work? I just, I just think we were resigned to it being a small business, which is not what we'd expected. You know, I can, I, you know, we used to outsource a lot of work because we only had um, one printer and we couldn't do kind of large posters and things like that. And I was always forever walking around Clerkenwell with a zip disk, you know, with, with images on to go and go to some other lab and get stuff printed. And I, I remember walking thinking, when will we ever get to 250 quid a day? You know, that, that felt like uh, unachievable. Um, I just think we, we just, we decided to dig in. I mean, we basically went into small business mode because there was this catastrophic collapse in the, um, in the NASDAQ market in May, 2000, uh, the, the whole dot-com bubble burst and it was suddenly impossible to get funded. Um, and you know, B2C businesses were considered to be, um, well, to not work. And 
so we just said right well let's cut our costs right down uh let's not really hire anybody else so for a long time mark and i ran the business ourselves um we started to gradually get you know two or three more people around uh, it, the next year but it was it was very slow going so then um you just mentioned that you then you kind of oh let's go to vcs what year was that that i was trying to ascertain that so that was 2005 and and like i said we let it go too long and uh, you know i was trying to be patient my wife was being patient but we'd at this point i was i was borderline broke i'd used up all my savings i'd remortgaged i'd sold my car we hadn't gone on any, any holidays for a couple of years um yeah, I can remember the one thing that my kids, uh, my kids wanted to go to a cafe after the park on a Saturday. And I was thinking, oh, it's going to be like 20 quids worth of hot chocolate and coffees. No, we can't do that. So there were no hot chocolates, no coffee, no posh coffees every day. And, and in 2005, I was just thinking it's been too long. It's been five years that we've given up all that stuff. Um, we have to change the plan. And so I remember saying to Mark, look, we've got a, we've got a, grow significantly and raise money or or we have to give up you know or sell the business or something so we made a plan to um to go and raise vc money and uh actually we made a plan to go do an an aim listing uh and to acquire a small european business and expand into europe um and that wasn't the plan that we ended up executing but it was something similar which was uh, merging with a French company and taking US VC money. Mm. Yeah, you, it's very interesting the way you. Um, I, I'm going to say I feel like you hacked the system a bit. You know, like you, 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 because most people again just generally would think, oh, raise money, but you, you seem to think quite laterally. So you looked. At, how did you even identify that opportunity? I, I think you know, we at the time we'd, we'd got to be. We'd become UK market leader for online photographic printing. Um, and there was nobody that could touch us in terms of market share. And we were doing some really innovative things. We already launched photo books and, you know, calendars and lots of other merchandise. And, and it was going really well. But we didn't feel rich. We didn't feel like, you know, we were geared up for future success um it 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 just felt like there's something else that we need to do and and i was thinking well if we're already uk market leader and this isn't satisfying the only thing we can do is aim to be european market leader um so it, it was just a kind of big audacious goal and and in order to pull it off we knew we need money so it was you know again it you don't get too religious about these things we need to raise money our first plan was do an aim listing because it was it felt like quite achievable and cost effective um and, but when that didn't work out we uh we did the vc path instead and and, and photoways was the company in france you merged with right so um how did that exactly. how did that conversation even happen did you just literally like ring them up and say hi uh, we'd like to merge or how did it how did you actually make that happen uh so 
we knew them because they were, you know, when you're in a niche industry, you know everybody else that is in that niche, right? So we knew these two guys and they'd started at the same time as us. And I'd we'd met them a few times, but we were both so ridiculously cagey. It was like ice cream wars, you know, they wouldn't let us see their factory, wouldn't, we wouldn't let them see ours, but we talked. Uh, it's always good to talk in these cases. And... Um, yeah, when we were going to acquire a small Swiss company and for, they had some really horrible tax issues, which we only discovered at the last minute. And so that deal was off. And, you know, my whole plans had kind of gone gone down the pan. So I, I phoned up um, the guys in France and I said, hey, we've got an AIM listing ready to go. Why don't we buy you? <laughs> and they said, we've just taken some VC money from the US. Why don't we buy you? And um, so we, uh, we, you know, got together, we talked, we hammered out a deal and, and that's the way we went. So it was a weird thing because they, Photoways technically bought Photobox, but in the end, we kept the UK name, the UK management team, not the French management team. Um, so it was like a reverse takeover if you like uh but we uh yeah we put the two together i mean it sounds like a big deal but it was they were two relatively small companies maybe um at that point 25 30 people each um but we were doing decent turnover i mean i i can't actually remember the number now but i'm going to say something that kind of makes sense to me we were maybe turning over a a, i don't know a couple of million quid at that time they were probably doing the same a little bit more um so we you know we put the two together and then we said right yeah next next stop europe so we we just made a plan to expand out across europe uh, which sounds simple there were lots and lots of issues along the way but we, easy we did it. expand across europe many different languages many different cultures easy easy but i i <laughs> I, I really love this point and again i want my audience to pick up on this point because a lot of people that have a business and, and a lot of the people that listen to this podcast have a business and they're, and they're struggling to scale it. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked is teaming up with your competitor or what is perceived as your competitor. Mm. Okay, you're in different markets, but you know, both of you probably thought at some point we could be in that market. So, you know, there's always that perception of competitiveness, but this kind of one plus one equals 11 model is very powerful. And, and, and think how much time was probably saved if they'd already done the VC funding raise you bought a lot of time there as well if they'd already done that, right? I mean, that was that was kind of a... Yeah. But I would, and, my, my and mind... The key my, thing... Go ahead, Graham, please. Slide sorry. Slide. No, no, there's yeah, a slide there. And the key ahead. thing about putting two companies together is um, they've got to... It's got to make sense, right? And you've got to bring different things to the table. Um, so in our case, I think we were much stronger at technology and customer service and... Uh, they were much stronger at the industrialization of the production process and marketing. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we were terrible at the, the things that we weren't strong at. So when we put both companies together, we were suddenly good in all four of those areas, um, which was great because that's absolutely what we needed. Um, it was also interesting that we, you know, Mark and I had been like super conservative in the way we'd run the company. We weren't taking big risks. We weren't spending big sums of money. Um, we, you know, we never did these kind of bonkers sales that would suddenly generate huge amounts of volume that we couldn't cope with. Whereas the French guys, they really had taken big risks and had really pushed things to the limits uh, to the point where, you know, I'm sure they had a few sleepless nights. But 
at the end of the day, they created more value. And, and that taught me a lesson that, you know, sometimes you've got to, you've got to take the risk and jump in with both feet. Um, but it also meant we had a few messes to clear up when, when we put the two companies together. Again, that's, that's, that's the interesting thing I find that two founders is pretty, pretty uh, easy to manage. Four founders, different uh, locations i i don't know how you manage that did you did you have a management structural conversation like okay so i'm going to take care of marketing you're going to take care is that how you managed to make that work well i think in the early days we were kind of muddling through with all of us around the table and and it it didn't really work i I don't think we kind of found natural roles but um the ceo of the french company decided that he was an early stage guy and he wanted to step off and do do some actually he ended up being a kind of professor of startup and entrepreneurship culture um and so he stepped off uh his ceo stayed on for a while but uh, uh, eventually decided to go off and do something else um and the vcs were kind of looking to mark and i saying well which one of you is going to be the ceo and i was thinking I already felt out of my depth. I, I, you know, running a pan-European company, I'm completely off the rails. So, I, and I, I was also thinking, well, I'm ready to be here, you know, once a week in Paris um, with my team there, but I'm not going to be there every day and I'm not going to move. So we said, look, we think we need somebody more experienced to come in as CEO and uh, asked around. And um, with the VC's help, we found the perfect guy. Um, and he came in at that point to to be CEO. I think he, his name was Stan. And I think he felt initially he was coming in for a couple of years to tidy things up. And he ended up staying with us for 10 years. And it's a weird dynamic because he, he's somebody that I asked for and, and effectively ended up hiring to replace myself. And then he ended up being the toughest boy, so boss I've ever had in my life for 10 years. <laughs> Why did you do that to yourself? Well, I'm glad I did. I no, mean, he totally. took us from whatever, whatever turnover we were at the time, maybe four or five million up to 300 million of turnover. And through a kind of relentless program of growth mindset and you know logical thinking about how to how to break through each of those barriers and i learned so much from him about um solving those scale up challenges um you know i i think i felt like i got to a good place in terms of startup business creation and and getting through the early stages but it was a completely different strategy to to scale a business um at the next level up I think this is another um, hugely valuable lesson. Now, I know what you said earlier about like, you know, hindsight and how you just kind of, I feel like you did a lot of this on instinct from what you're saying, Mm. but, and it's easy to look back and as you say, like pinpoint moments that, you know, made a difference. But I think it is something that is learnings that are transferable to people. And, And my, the way I, what I'm hearing when you, when you just talk about this is that it is quite interesting to do two things. One, bring in someone uh, to to um, take over from you, I think way too many founders uh, get stuck because they're good at zero to one, but they're not good after that. But they get stuck because they don't they don't see it, they don't accept it, mm. they don't want a boss, right? That's what they, they think that's what entrepreneurship is. It's not having someone to report to. Well, we've all got customers to report to straight off the bat. So you know, but a lot, of, and I think the 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 ones that scale uh, uh, follow the kind of the formula I think you've just explained, which is you bring someone in that knows better than you the ceo role and maybe then someone that will also push you um and and is different to yeah. you 
And and that that and although that sounds hard, I mean, I see that with uh, people that have quite difficult board of advisors, for example. You know, Steve Jobs said his favourite board of advisors ones that never turned up for meetings. You know, but in a way, I think that's wrong. I think it's actually really good to have, I guess, some tough love, especially at certain stages in your life where you know. Um, you want to build a business maybe not now <laughs> at this stage of your life you want a mm. tough boss but at certain points it really can bring you up can't it I mean it sounds like that's what happened with with with, with you yeah I mean I'm, I, I I like running but I've never been a, a kind of athlete and, and I'm sure you know having a coach for athletics is about having somebody that every day is pushing you beyond your comfort zone and um, and it felt like that a lot with Stan and I i you know he's a good friend these days and I, I i tell him how much i appreciate him pushing me but also being very patient and and uh you know waiting for me to catch up at times um but yeah it really helped did, did you argue was it was there friction there i didn't argue with him i i i felt pretty put upon and intimidated at times uh and a, a sinking feeling if i'd see his his name come up on my phone on a sunday evening uh if if the site was performing badly or something like that but um i fought with uh other members of the leadership team uh, as we grew and which is unusual for me but it, it was it was a very kind of spicy leadership team we had a lot of different personalities um a lot of different nationalities represented uh and um actually we did one of those kind of almost myers briggs type evaluations a few years ago um it was called strength scope and it turns out that every single one of the kind of 12 segments of personality type were represented around our leadership table and again i think that was very healthy it meant that when a problem came along there were some people who were strong at dealing with it some that weren't um we all had a different way of looking at things some more emotional some more logical some more conflict-based um and uh you know it created a healthy tension but yeah we did argue mm. that's an interesting one isn't it that was by accident you ended up having that uh, that leadership yeah. team but again i think a lot of people do i've made this mistake myself you know you hire people that are similar to you but that that actually can be a problem um because you yeah. don't, don't necessarily challenge There's each other book. the book i read last year called rebel ideas by matthew syed and and it's all about ha having diversity in any group um is a much healthier operating model you you cover more of the problem space you don't get blindsided by things that are outside of your 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 sphere of knowledge and um yeah i you know i lived i lived through that and it was really useful mm. i'm just trying to imagine you know you, this sunday night phone call from stan and you're dreading it but this is your company so you know wasn't there a moment when you're like i shouldn't be feeling this way you know no no no, no. i kind of plunged myself back into the depths of of ineptitude and uncertainty uh, so you know after we hired stan i said oh i'll do the technology i'll be cto and and again, you know, it's naivety. I, I, I looked at the what we had. We had like two websites that I'd brought to the table, one for UK, one for um, Spain. And uh, we had two different platforms and we had four from the French company um, and they all did different things. And I said naively, just give me, you know, 12 people in nine months and I'll build this one super website that does everything in all countries and 
And I, you know, naively also said, oh, yeah, we can rebrand and we can have Web 2.0 and drag and drop and all this stuff. And of course, that project, it was horrible. It was horrible. And I, I remember, you know, being about 18 months into this nine months delivery and thinking I was on holiday in Sweden with my family. And I was thinking, I have no way out of this. I, I literally don't know what to do to fix this project. Uh, I am so out of my depth. And um, I remember, you know, I, I basically checked into the hospital at one point with palpitations after a, you know, a bad week. And uh, and and it was a kind of burnout, you know, I just couldn't figure it out. Um, and uh, that I guess that was the low point. But it just made me realize that it's really possible to um, to get out of your depth quite quickly if you particularly if you like me you I project um, you know a positive air of yeah I'll take control I'll take care of that don't worry leave it with me and of course then when you can't deliver you just think what do I do next mm. well it's, it's uh, amazing uh, to, to share that vulnerability and and then that, that that but how did you get out of that low moment what what was the turning point if that was the low moment and you were feeling that way what did you finish the project or how did you how did you turn it around so i i think i went to see stan and i said fire me fire me this is not going well you know i i don't know the way out and and i think he you know i think he said something along the lines of just keep working the problems you know like break it down what's what's wrong you know what what don't you know and um and and I really wanted him to fire me. I didn't want to have to fix the problem, but I did. And I think over a period of a few months, we just, we got, you know, a little bit closer. We kind of de-scoped what, what could be thrown overboard. We we got, we focused on the core that needed to be developed and delivered. And um, I do remember that we got the website out after two years, but it was desperately slow. And then we spent the next six months making it work faster. And And I... I've got this graph imprinted on my brain of, uh, you know, customer conversion, which crashed for, <laughs> for like that period where we launched the website. And then after about six months, it climbed back up again. I have to say that particular platform was, you know, it, it powered us through the next few years amazingly. And once it got there, it was it was great. Um, there are so many things about it I would have changed now in, in retrospect, but um but if, if ultimately it did work, I was just naive in the delivery. And, uh, you know, I, I remember reflecting with um, a guy called Chris, who was my first web developer uh, and I'd worked with for 17 years at Photobox and, and since then. And we said, do you know what we should have done? We just should have taken the old crappy UK website and make it work multi-language. Could have done that in six months. You know, job done and then on to something else. <laughs> yeah, well, there's another another important learning there, isn't it? Sometimes it's the old MVP kind of yeah. uh, stuff that's chucked around, you know, but it just, it, it sometimes the uh, creating everything from scratch sounds cool, sounds like a fun project, but sometimes just um, sticking lipstick on a... Pig, is that what they say? Is it sometimes better, right? Just um, trying to glamorize yeah. it up without, without all that work. But t tell us, kind of, first of all, um, the story strikes me as kind of the opposite to the Steve Jobs story. You know, like Steve Jobs is like, you're not getting rid of me, and they get him out of Apple, and you're the opposite story. It's like, better fire me, you know, like, <laughs> I can't do it. Is it. I don't know what the movie's going to look like when they do your movie, Graham, but it's going to be slightly less dramatic. <laughs> it's going to be, I'm fighting back. Wait, you know, like, to fire me, I'm useless. It's, um, 
I don't know if they're going to get Ashton Kutcher to play you. I don't know. But, uh, but, but yeah, this, this, <laughs> the role will be different, let's say that. But um, so, yeah. so, I mean, just, uh, just to finish off the story um, and try... So, so you basically, you, 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 you get the website. I, I was reading that you kind of had your kind of first sniff at an exit when there was a trade sale opportunity in around 2010, right? So, so tell yes. us kind of what happened around that, you know, because I think exit's always an interesting... By that point, you're what, 10 years into it. Was that was that an appealing opportunity, or did you still have the feeling that oh no, we, we're going to keep going? How did what happened? Yeah, I remember getting together with the leadership team in the spring of that year, 2010, and we were, you know, I was pretty tired at this point. Things had got to a good place, but I'd been 10 years working on this. We also had, you know, VCs that had been in the game for four years at that point, which is you know the point where they normally like to start thinking about jumping off. Um, and we went through four strategic options for what we wanted to do. And I remember that, you know, selling the company was definitely one of the top two. Um, and uh, again, Stan, who's a very methodical guy, was like, well, OK, you know, leave it with me. And uh, he was always chatting to people in the industry and seeing what was going on out there. And, yeah, we had an opportunity to uh, to sell. There was a... a a much bigger company from another market um, that was interested and it got really, really far down the line. They were, you know, drafting our personal contracts and everything. And my dad, um, my dad was in his late seventies at the time and had always had a, you know, a pretty healthy life, but he'd, he'd uh, contracted cancer that year and he was, he was, we didn't know quite how bad it was, but we knew it wasn't good. Um, and I, uh, I, I remember him, you know, talking to me and I couldn't tell him a lot about the deal, but I said to him, oh, there's a really good opportunity, you know, and I, I went off. I remember I got dragged off of a, a summer holiday to go and, and have a meeting um, in, in Paris about this. And it felt like, you know, we were at the, you know, the last hurdle kind of thing. And um, we came away from that meeting and we thought something's wrong here. Something, something has gone, something's flipped, you know, in the deal. Um, and it, and my view was, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, but, you know, let's give it a few weeks and see what happens. But it did fall apart in that autumn. And uh, when, so when my dad died, which was at the end of that year, just before that, I was saying to him, look, you know, I didn't, sell the business I didn't have this big exit but don't worry about me you know like I'm I'm in a good place with this business and um you know something good will happen uh and don't don't worry about me you know it's because you know parents worry about your kids particularly if they're entrepreneurs it's like uh you know parents probably think I don't want my kids to go in the army or be an entrepreneur so uh but um no it, it was it was a blow but um to be honest, many of the blows that I've had over the years have, have felt terrible at the time, but have all been temporary and something better has come along later. That's a good uh, lesson. I felt exactly the same. I think, again, for listeners, you know, the, the, the moments uh, that are hard actually give you the strength to do big things. And so, so you, this exit doesn't happen. But what, what is the next big thing that does happen in the business? Um. Well, I think we reflected after that in why didn't it happen? Um, what was it that allowed the other party to get distracted? What was it that made us less than 100% compelling? And 
and and actually we came up with a list of quite credible things that that might have been the reason and uh and and being the kind of proactive people we were we thought okay well how do we fix those things some of them we could fix internally some of them we could fix externally and um for various reasons there were a number that could have been fixed by buying Moonpig. And, and Moonpig was a company that I'd known for years. I'd known Nick Jenkins for years. In fact, he used to print cards for us. We used to do stuff for, for them. Um, and we'd even kind of danced around, you know, putting the two companies together at a much earlier stage, which didn't happen. Uh, but in 2011, we agreed a deal and we acquired Moonpig. So that was, you know... It was probably one of the biggest private acquisitions in the UK um, for a long time. And uh, uh, people, you know, it, it's on public record that we bought that company for £120 million. And uh, people always ask me if, if I regret that and, you know, or felt we overpaid. And uh, and at the time, I would say, no, it, it was absolutely, you know, the right thing to do. And it was transformative to us and our group and, and and of course these days they don't they don't ask that question anymore <laughs> just just thinking about the journey think back to that you know that december 2001 with your kids you know you can't buy the hot chocolates after football on the saturday and here you are buying a company for 120 million pounds and how, how i mean did you ever you must reflect on that but that's just how did you get the money how did that look it's just crazy isn't it well it, it's you know, it, you have to kind of stop thinking, hey, I'm great, because, uh, well, first of all, it's other people's money. It's always other people's money. <laughs> uh, and you you owe them, right? Yeah, and they, they want it back. Um, but I, yeah, we did that through a combination of raising more equity uh, and, and debt. Um, you know, we were a, a healthy business that was consistently growing and um, with good margins. So we were cash generative. And one of the um, one of the good things about cash generative businesses is that you can afford to take on debt, uh, which is much better in the long term than selling equity. And, uh, you know, you have uh, relatively high confidence you can pay it back when you need to. Um, so, yeah, we it was a complex structure, but we we did it. We, we brought in some new VCs to help um, who were great. And, uh, yeah, we did that deal. Incredible. And, you know, the, the Again, you know, news, you can never be sure what's true or not, but the reported exit on the business was 400 million when, when, when you sold it, right? Yeah, it was less than that, but it was, uh, it was still a very healthy, uh, you know, multiple of, of the valuation at the point when we were, um, you know, in, where we were in 2010. Which is an incredible journey. I mean, I've, I was reading, you know, from other stuff that you've said in the past that when you came up with the idea originally, you were hoping secretly that Kodak or Fuji would do it instead and when you wouldn't have to do it you know and uh, so I, I find that also fascinating you know that the uh, it, it's sometimes when you've got an idea you just want it to happen right and in a way it felt like yeah just I just wanted to print photos I didn't you know I, right. it would have been a lot less hassle if uh, Fuji had launched that week with that service but yeah. um, <laughs> here we are I still like that life's <laughs> too short for an inkjet printer which uh, I think literally should be a t-shirt um but um, but what what about what about success today for you? What what does what does success mean now for you? How do you frame it? Um, well, success is it, it, it's about freedom, 
to make your own choices. It's about, um, <clears throat> you know, not worrying about bills that come in. And it, it's it's the choice on, you know, how I want to spend my time and how I want to, you know, contribute in other ways. That's that's what success feels like now. I, um, I, I mean, I, it's probably a trite thing to say, but I don't, I don't care a lot about money. Um, you know, we, our car is 13 years old and the bumper's hanging off. Uh, I'm not a yacht person. I'm not a aeroplane person. You know, I, we just have a nice suburban life. Uh, but it's nice not to worry about stuff and it's nice to, um, you know, support causes and, and things that we feel passionately about. Uh, but I, you know, one thing I do kind of worry about these days is is wealth inequality. I've I've always been um, worried about it, and and I'm part of a think tank that's trying to put pressure on the powers that be for thinking about more progressive taxation and wealth taxes. Um, I mean, three years ago, the average tax on wealth in the UK was around 2%. Whatever you'd accumulated, you somehow ended up paying away about 2% a year. It's now dropped to less than 1%. Um, you know, the top 1% of society owns a quarter of the, all the wealth in the UK. It's, it, it, it's, it's not sustainable because effectively, um, you know, I, I'm a wealthy person these days, but I don't need to continue to grow that wealth. I've, 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 it, the way I think about it is imagine if you were a fisherman, you know, or, you know, an angler and you were fishing on a lake and you had an amazing bumper day where you're just landing fish after fish after fish and you can't eat all those fish, um, you know, so what are you going to do? Take them home and let them rot. Um, you can give some away to friends, but in, in all honesty, you're going to you're going to think I had an amazing day. You're going to take a picture of them and you're going to put half of them back in the lake and and that's not how wealth works in the UK. A lot of people take their wealth out. It continues to grow and they don't really have meaningful ways to give back to society. And And I think there should be a better way of doing that. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Um, and even this podcast, the whole platform I'm personally building is built on that premise, you know, that, that everybody should have a chance to, to have a, a life where they don't worry about money. You know, everyone should have a chance to, to get access to the resources and network. And, and, and unfortunately, it's not, not even. And, and, it, and, you, and you say, you're saying quite right. I think it's, it's, it's not sustainable. I think it's just as not sustainable as, as putting plastic in the oceans and, and all these other things out there because it, it's, um, it's creating poverty when there doesn't need to be. I think and and and, yeah. and I think that's that's the that's the sad reality of it so I I concur. I I mean I benefited greatly from social mobility. I I I wasn't born poor or you know kind of uh, in poverty in any way. I I was you know part of a normal middle class family in a suburb but but my parents weren't you know super rich. We we lived in a modest house and you know, they had nice, my dad had a nice car and we went on foreign holidays, but it was, you know, it was kind of normal middle class, lower middle class kind of upbringing. And, and I, I, I managed to, I guess, through having technology skills, just managed to get, you know, increasingly well-paid jobs and experience, and then have an opportunity to kind of launch into an entrepreneurial career. And 
I think any everybody should have that kind of social mobility opportunity and not feel like they have to inherit wealth from their parents to get to get anywhere in life. Yeah, it's an interesting subject because I think there's also an element again um thinking of my audience where they might be um you know you need lots of money to start a business for example. And sometimes you know if you don't chase the money if, if it's like the whole thing if you want to raise money ask someone for advice and they'll give you money ask for money and they'll give you advice. Right. So it's, it's, that, it's that framing things in a way that, you know, it is about money. It is. Everyone needs money to live. But equally, if you can actually find your purpose, a passion, things you like to do, then if you make money or don't make money, as long as you can cover your bills, it doesn't really matter. But that's very different to what I think is the system working against people. Right. And I think mm. and, I, and I think I guess people listening to this, this is quite a heavy potential debate. It's one we should have. I love it. I love to talk about this in, in an open forum, because I think what I've seen when this conversation comes up is people will say, well, you know, if you want uh, employers to employ people, you've got to keep minimum wage low. Um, and, and these arguments actually fall flat, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, the second, end of the Second World War when a political party popped up saying, we don't want women you know, in the workforce anymore. Go back home because we don't want them taking all the jobs of all the men. Right. You know, there's literally a political party at the end of yeah. the Second World War that said that it was absolutely ridiculous. Right. But a lot of people believed it and voted for them, thinking that somehow women in the workforce would be bad news because they would take all the jobs from men. Right. Ridiculous thing. Right. And I think in a way mm. that's the same thing with equality. If you pay people properly, then then actually standard of living lifts for everybody. But I but I do yes. see the governments think, well, we better kept taxes low. Otherwise, people will go offshore or people will leave with their money. That doesn't actually happen. Right. It doesn't happen. And, and, and I think the problem is we're hardwired, particularly wealthy people are hardwired to think taxes are bad. You know, whatever, whatever it is that that tax is called or being used for, it's a bad thing. And I should legally avoid it at all costs. You know, I should find ways to minimize it. Uh, but if you said to somebody, look, you've got all this money on deposit or in savings or in investments or whatever, and Who's the best person to benefit from? Say you carved off a hundred grand of that money, right? Do you need the growth from that hundred grand, or could that hundred grand go into health or infrastructure or education in the country? Which one is the greater need? And I don't think people are thinking about the positive societal impact of, of, of you know, releasing some of this wealth. And you know, who wouldn't want their kids to grow up in a society that's fairer with more opportunity with higher growth um with less crime with with you know more equality who wouldn't want that uh, for their families um so i don't think it's being framed correctly and i think we've got a lot of work to do no well um i i think this is such an important subject and and i can see from your track record that you're not just speaking about these things you're doing things i you know i'm a big fan of beam for example i know you're a supporter of them too i just interviewed alex as well you know i think the other side of it is kind of impact investing supporting people that are trying to make a difference and beam's a good example for me of that um you know businesses that are yeah. trying to uh, support those that need it the most and and a lot of the time it, it is just setting up infrastructure to give people the chance to do the right thing. There's not even much infrastructure around to allow people to do the right thing. I can see it from my side. I know, you know, on on the um, you know helping entrepreneurs front, there are a lot of people that are doing accelerators, for example. So these are companies that are already doing quite well, and they take a bit of equity from them and give them a bit of money. But they probably would have done well without them. And you and you've got you know investment 
uh, VC types that will help people that probably would have done well without them, you know. But there really isn't anybody helping those those folks that can't afford a coach, that can't afford an advisor, that can't haven't got a business yet. They're almost like left to like, well, get a job or you can't do anything. And and it's a shame. There's a there's a there's and I think things can change. I do see the rise of impact investing. I don't know if you're seeing this. But I do see a yes. lot more impact investing coming into the market. And I see a lot more people that want to build businesses with purpose. And so I see hope there in, in the private sector. I'm still a bit dubious on the government side um, because they're very you know, cyclical, right? They're very election focused, right? Um, yeah, you can't, you can't solve big problems in society on a four-year cycle. It just doesn't work. Um, yeah, even worse, know, it's two years, right? Infrastructure project is going to be 10 to 15 years totally. in, in uh, its cycle. If you wanted to tackle really big restructuring, I, you know, the ideal time frame is 40 to 50 years. You've got to give people enough notice to, re- you know, for example, um, I, I don't personally understand why we let speculators invest in property in the hope that it'll go up in value because everyone needs property right we all Mm. need to live somewhere it's a it's a basic need you wouldn't let speculators drive up the price of bread in the supermarket um you you, you, because everybody needs it right so i don't understand why we let uh, people buy property for no other purpose than it to increase in value and often it's left empty with no tenants so i would implement taxes that actually uh, encourage people to put property to use, let people live in it and and whatever. Or if they're not going to fill it with people, then they're incentivized to sell it. But you can't do that kind of thing, you know, next year. You have to say to people, do you know what? In 20 years' time, this is what's going to happen. Mm. And between now and then, you've all got time to adjust. You've all got time to adjust your investments and your portfolios. Um, but we want to live in a society that um, recognizes that housing should be for people, not for investors. Um, but th- those things take time. And, 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 and you know, touching what I have a video on TikTok that's got a couple of million views. And I'm basically talking about how I don't think property investment is a particularly positive business. I can see how people can make money out of it. But the societal impact far outweighs the personal profit, I think, that someone can make from the property business. Because I, I agree with you completely. And I do see, you know, I find it, I was reading the history of the Monopoly game, the board game Monopoly. And it turns out the history, I don't know if you do know the history. I've heard this before. There were two sets of rules. Yeah, there was two uh, games. It was originally designed by someone that didn't (laughs) like capitalism and was trying to highlight to people the problem with allowing people to buy property because there ends up being one winner, right? That's how it works. And so eventually everyone else is bust and one person owns it all, right? So And they were trying to show a different way, which was, you know, in, in their particular model, that government... Um, I'm not saying that's also the answer these days, but the government owned the land and people would live on the land and rent the land and be able to live together in harmony forever. But that, but that game was not popular, so it got dumped. And the capitalistic game we now all know and love as Monopoly became popular. But it does highlight the problem. And so mm. it's uh, something I also feel very passionately about. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, happy to have someone of your uh, experience and humbleness and uh, track record thinking about these things. Um, so I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Mm. Look, I mean, I, I know we only have you for an hour. Um, I, I do have a lot more questions. I wanted to talk about education and I wanted to talk about innovating in today's world. Um, but I, I, I maybe have you back on another day, uh, Greg, and, and we can also... Yeah, absolutely. Um, My I'd, pleasure. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the important subjects you brought up. But I want to thank you for giving time. I'll just end, I guess, uh, with one question I like to, uh, to, to end the podcast with, which is, you know, if you went back to your younger self and, and gave some advice, um, what, what, would you, what would you say? 
Do you know what? Um, you know, things have all kind of worked out okay. So I'd be a bit worried that I'd give myself advice that would put me on a different path and it, it would be, uh, it wouldn't work out. I mean, you know, there are many things where, like I said, localized dramas that I re really wish I would have avoided uh, specific business decisions, you know, bad projects, uh, hiring the wrong people. You know, I wish I'd been steered off some of those things, but hey, you've got to take the the bad with the good yeah. well if you um, write a book about that then uh, we can we can distribute that and people will be able to learn <laughs> but yeah. i i'd go back graham and i'd buy you and your family hot chocolates that saturday <laughs> that would that would have been nice yeah that's that that's what we could all do if we see someone walking around looking a bit sad we know they're an entrepreneur trying to make a business work buy them a hot chocolate sounds yeah. like a t-shirt as well but um but uh, Graham, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and being so open and I uh, really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on the podcast another time. Thank you. No, I'd love to. Thanks so much, Simon.